With all that, now we can get in Genesis 31. And if you remember last week, Laban and um, Jacob were interacting, and Jacob was kind of proposing a deal for pay me some wages, and they worked out an agreement where he got the, the smaller portion of the herd, but God kept multiplying it. It was kind of like a veterinary sermon toward the end in a way. Today we're going to kind of continue because we're going to see the results. So chapter 31, verse 1. And by the way, our title tonight, and you'll see why fairly soon, it's called Little G, Not For Me. Little G, Not For Me. It'll make sense later, trust me. Verse 1, it says, Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. They're talking about those animals because now Jacob's flocks are bigger is what they're really saying. But in verse 2, it says, Jacob also noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. He's getting upset about it. But look what verse 3 says. Then the Lord, so the Lord speaks, said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers. Go back to the promised land is what that means. To your relatives, and I'll be with you. Go back, I'll be with you. God has already told him this before, by the way, in other chapters. He's telling him again. He's not done telling him even with this verse. He's going to hear it again. But let's kind of look at some of those other verses, one and two. Jacob didn't take anything. They worked out an agreement. Laban was okay with it. It's not Jacob's fault that God has blessed his herd bigger than, than Laban's. But their grumbling, this son's grumbling, has apparently wrecked Laban's attitude. He's starting to listen to his sons. That guy's got all your stuff. But God did it. But I think the most important part, I just mentioned it, God gives him solution. Go back to the promised land. I'll be with you. I'll bless you even more. We'll see if he does it as we keep reading. Verse 4. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah, his wives, to come out of the fields where his flocks were. He says, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before, but the God, and here's the key, of my father. He doesn't say my God. The God of my father has been with me. So he's growing, but he's not there yet. It's still daddy's God, not mine. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, he's going to explain to the ladies what, what's going on. He says, you know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. Every agreement he's made, he's shifted it, Laban. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said, that would be Laban, the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. If he said, the streaked one of your wages, all the flocks bore streaked young. So God, not me, in other words, I'm not a veterinary scientist, God did this. If God has taken away your father's livestock and gave them to me, what can I, what can I do about it? But don't miss the part, Laban has changed his wages ten times. We'll hear that again. He'll tell Laban that face-to-face -face later on in our text. But God saw it. Jacob knew it. He kind of took it, didn't complain outright, it doesn't look like. But God saw it. Not only does God see when we're mistreated, God will deal with it. But there's also some instructions for us not to take matters in our own hands, like all these people in Genesis have been doing. Let's look at a verse from Romans. This is a great reminder for all of us. When we get mistreated. You've all been mistreated, so have I. Look what Romans says, though. Do not take revenge. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Don't do it. Then it goes on to say, who will? 
my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. And it really just means leave your wrath out of the picture, for it is written. This is God speaking. It's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. But you know, we're just people. We want payment now, don't we? Fix it, God, right now. That guy, that person, that lady, she wronged me. She might have cut me off on Wickham today or whatever. Get her. Make her tire go flat. You know, that guy stole my money. Make him go bankrupt. God will fix it, but it's God's timing, not mine, not yours. We just have to trust the Lord to fix it for us, and he will, like he just did for Laban. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. In breeding season, that's back to the herd thing, I once had a dream which I looked up and saw all the male goats mating with the flock that were streaked, speckled, or spotted. Then the angel of, the, of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, here I am, I answered. And he said to me, look up and see all the male goats mating with the flock that are streaked, speckled, or spotted, for I have seen. He's speaking for, on God's behalf. God has seen all that Laban has been doing to you. And God stepped in and fixed it. Remember if you were here last week, I said Laban agreed to that deal because he saw in his mind, there's no way I won't come out on top. These are the smaller portion of the herd, these speckled, streaked, and spotted animals. I'll have the bigger flock. They'll keep having, you know, babies. I'll, I'll get rich. He'll get poor. He's got the ones I don't want anyway. God says, okay, well, let's see how that works for you, Laban. God blesses Jacob. His herd becomes giant. He saw that Jacob was being wrong. God intervened. God fixed it. And if you also remember from last week, I threw out some theories about maybe how that would have happened with peeling those branches, herbal medicine, that kind of stuff. But I hinted this week we would see who really did it, God. God did it. No matter how, you know, the method, the breeding, because it did say he made it strong with strong and gave Laban the weaker animals. Then that whole herbal crazy theory I threw out there with you about the bark and stuff. But God did it. God blessed the herd because it was his plan. He had promised, if you go back to the covenant years and years ago, to bless Jacob, and he's going to do it. God's word can't be stopped. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillow. Or maybe it says pillar. Remember that story? Your pillow was a pillar, was a rock. And then Pastor Dave told us that bad joke about the my pillow guy and stairway to heaven. See, it's coming back to you. It's coming back. I won't do that to you today, I promise. And he's in Israel. He's not hearing me make fun of his joke either, by the way, unless he's streaming. If you're streaming, Dave, sorry. Um, he wouldn't care. We're good buddies. But I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar that is a pile of rocks, where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. He's telling him again, go back. He told him a couple of chapters ago the same thing, go back. Is he going to do it yet? Well, he's kind of getting there, but he's not there yet. But let's think about what was this vow. If you remember that week we, we looked at it, Jacob made a vow, God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. Remember that week? And I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to read it. I'm going to paraphrase it sort of. Here's what Jacob said. God, if you'll be with me, if you'll provide for me and get me safely back to my father's household, I will make you my God. Remember that week? That was his vow. He still not followed through with that. God did his part. 
except the part, I'll be with you when you go back, because he never has left yet. He's, God will do that part, but Jacob had never done his. So God is just telling him, really, if you think about it, Jacob, you made that vow, do what you said. Follow through, do your part, so I can do my part completely. Which brings up a great concept from Deuteronomy. Um, let's look at that together. Deuteronomy 23 talks about making these promises, and this is good for us. Even though we're not under these Old Testament laws, it's still a good point for us to remember. It says, when you make a vow, a promise, think of it as a promise, to the Lord your God, be prompt in fulfilling whatever you promised him. Jacob is not doing that. We already know. For the Lord your God demands, insists, that you promptly fulfill all your vows. Look what it says after that. Or you'll be guilty of sin. But look what follows. This is a great concept too, I think. However, it's not a sin to refrain from making the vow. In other words, what that says in plain English, don't make promises you don't keep. It's better not to make one. If you're not going to fulfill it, don't make it. It's only a sin if you don't do what you said. It's not a sin, clearly, if you don't even make the vow. So it's kind of better off not to put your mouth ahead of your body in nice words. Yes. So let's keep reading. Verse 14. He's told the ladies, the wives, what he wants to do. Look at what they, they answer back. Then Rachel and Leah replied, do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? The answer is no, and they, they're asking like a rhetorical question. Does he not regard us as foreigners, almost as servants and slaves is what they're really meaning? Not only has he sold us, there's the slave part, but he's used up what he paid for us. So he's already spent all the money that he got from Jacob, all these wages. Remember Jacob worked seven years for each one? Laban's already apparently frivoled out away. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father, in other words, this big herd that Jacob has, belongs to us. Notice they don't say it belongs to Jacob. It belongs to us, the daughters that got mistreated. So Jacob, do whatever God told you, is what they're saying. Now last week, if you were here, remember they were bitter rivals having that baby competition you know, I'll one-up you, I'll get my servant to have a child, I'm having a child, who's got the most kids, because the most kids equals the most love. They were kind of at each other's throats almost. Tonight, they're united. Why are they united? Money. We want daddy's money. <laughs> I like you if we can get on the same page and get all the wealth. They're blinded by the wrong thing. So let's keep back, back to our story, keep reading 17. Then Jacob put his children and his wife on camels, drove all the livestock ahead of him, which would have been a big herd, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Pot and Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, interesting verse, Rachel stole her father's household gods. In your Bibles, what size is that G? Little G, right? Now the title's making a little more sense. Little G, not for me. We'll keep beating that horse a while, I promise. Why did she steal these little G gods? And little G gods, by the way, there's other verses that talk about little G gods have no power. They're, they're idols. They're sometimes stone. They're wood. They're statues. They can do nothing. And God makes fun of them through Scripture because they're just statues. 
She took her father's household gods, plural, by the way. He's got a, a few of these things. They're different gods, most likely. Not our God. He has multiple little G gods. But why did she take them? Well, I think it depends on how you see Rachel. Um, if you see Rachel as a good person, a nice lady, maybe you think she took him. If you were here last week also, if you remember, we talked about Laban practicing divination or witchcraft, occult. If you see her as being good, maybe she took the little G gods to keep him from talking to them. Don't talk to those little G gods, Daddy. I'll take them and get them away from your, and I'll, I'll fix this. Personally, I doubt that's why she did it. I would make the case she did it because she values these things. She wants to worship them herself. She's getting Daddy back, too. One last kind of dig at Daddy. I'm taking your little G gods that are so important to you. Kind of like she shoplifted on the way out the house almost. <laughs> but I think she valued them. You know, you don't steal things you don't value. Stealing's wrong, but you don't really steal things you don't value. So, to my mind, she did it for the bad reason. You can make your own minds up. Let's keep reading. Moreover, Jacob deceived. What's his name known as? The deceiver. He's still up to being Jacob. He's gotten better, but he's still not got Jacob out of Jacob. Sorry, Jacob. I know you're in here somewhere. He deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he had, crossed the Euphrates River, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. So why would he deceive Laban? Well, I think two reasons in my mind as I was studying this. He still has the fear of man. He's afraid Laban's going to hurt him, kill him, harm him. And by the way, I think he's correct in that. We'll see that later in the text. But even worse, in my mind, he doesn't trust God. What did God just tell him? You go, I'll be with you. You go, I'll be with you. Be with you means protect you, doesn't it? He doesn't trust God. He's sneaking and deceiving still. Let me read, read verse 3 just so we're clear what God told him. Then the Lord said, said personally to Jacob, this is verse 3, go back to the land of your fathers, to your relatives, I'll be with you. That means I'll be with you on the journey, I'll protect you, I'll get you back there safely. Laban just doesn't trust him because he's going to go chase him down. We're going to see that in the next verse. On the third day, and why the third day? If you were here last week, remember, they separated the herds by a great distance because Laban wanted to make sure Jacob didn't steal any of his animals. So it took a few days to get the news over that, hey, Jacob took off. You better go check on that. I don't know what's going on over there, but they left. The third day, Laban was told Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days. So Jacob has a seven-day head start. And he's moving fast. We'll see in a second. But he eventually caught up with him, the text says, in the hill country of Gilead. More on that in a second, too. But look what happens in verse 24. This is kind of important. Then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night, likely the night before he catches up to Jacob, and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Don't, what he's really saying, if you think about it in plain English, don't mess with my boy Jacob. There'll be a price to pay. And, and God spoke that to him in a dream. But 
kind of brings up a question. Why is God talking to, as I call him now, little G Laban? He doesn't have the right God. He's worshiping false gods. Why is God speaking to him? Well, it tells me by, you know, you've got to put two and two together in a way. Laban had bad intentions. I think that's clear evidence because God is not a God of wasting time. If, if Laban was going to be nice and friendly and go hug him and be, treat him great, God doesn't need to warn him. He gave him a stern warning because he needs it. He has harm in mind, I think. So God took care of it, which brings up our first point if you're taking notes tonight. God knows what we're thinking. He knows what I'm thinking, knows what you're thinking, including while we're up here at church. If our mind is in the gutter, God knows it, no matter where we are, 24-7. He knew what Laban was thinking. He warned him because he knew his bad thoughts would lead to bad intentions. Let's see what happens next. Verse 25. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him, and, his, and Laban and his relatives camped there too. Then Laban, he kind of confronts Jacob and he says, what have you done? In other words, you snuck off. What are you doing? You've deceived me. And Laban, by the way, remember we just read, changed his wages ten times, so he doesn't got much room to be accusing people in my mind. You deceived me. You've carried off my daughters like captives that you legally bargained for and sold them, as they put it, by the way, so doesn't have much of a leg to stand on that one either. You've carried off my daughters like captives in a war. So as we read that, we've seen the name two or three times. Where is Gilead? We need a little bit. Don't, are you ready for some backstory? We need some backstory, don't we? This is Wednesday. This is backstory night. Gilead is east of the Jordan River, which might ring a bell a little bit. And by the way, Jacob is fleeing, but he's kind of flying. He's almost in the promised land. That Gilead is right across the Jordan River from the promised land. So he's really almost back. But if you go to Numbers 32, remember the chapter where the, the tribes of Israel are going to enter the promised land? And then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh say, hey, we like this side of the river. Let us stay over here. And, and Moses says, oh, no, we got to go in. But if you'll agree to go fight with us, we'll take the men to fight. You can come back and have this area. And, and they do. That's Gilead. So he's all the way over there. That's Gilead, this land they're talking about. It's the land east of the Jordan we see in Scripture, all through Scripture, especially in Numbers 32. So there's your little backstory. Let's get back to our real text, verse 27. Now Laban's got more questions. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me again? Why didn't you tell me? Now this part, I think, is a little unbelievable. So I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of timbrels and harps. I would have had a great going away party, Jacob, if you'd have just told me. Yeah, right, Laban. Then he kind of adds, now he's going to try to play on his sympathy. You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. He's trying to make... Jacob feel guilty, but it's not really working, so he's going to ramp it up a notch. We'll see Laban's character real quick all through our text tonight. If you were here three or four weeks ago, remember Pastor Dave told us that Laban's not a good guy? We're going to see that driven home all night long. 
Um, we already read he has little g gods, but it goes on and on. So he's kind of lying about this party. Now he's going to move into threats. Let's keep reading verse 28. I only read the first half of 28. Let me finish 28. It says, you have done a foolish thing. You can almost hear his voice getting mad or stern. Look what he says next. I have the power to harm you. That's like a veiled threat. It kind of means I want to harm you, but God told me in a dream not to. That's really what that probably means. Because he even says, look, if we keep reading, but last night the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, good or bad. Well, he ain't listening too good, is he? He's already saying a bunch of good and bad, I think. False promises of parties, veiled threats. Now in verse 30 it says, you've gone off because you long to return to your father's household. But his real question, now he's going to drill it down to what he really wants to know. Why'd you steal my little G gods? They are so valuable to me, is what you can read into that text. I want my gods back. You can have my daughters. Give me those gods. And, and they're missing, and he knows it. Now, we'll see later. Jacob doesn't believe that, but he's threatening harm. And that's why, like I said a while ago, I think God had to intervene. He was going to harm Jacob. It's pretty clear with those threats. But he's worried about his little G gods. Remember our title? Little G, not for me, that's for us. No little G stuff. And, and we'll talk about that in a second too. Which brings up our second point if you're taking notes tonight. All, don't miss that, all little G gods can be stolen. But look in the parentheses. Because hopefully none of us have little carbon things at the house. If you have any of those, go on the night, throw them away. Burn them. Get rid of them. But I know you don't. You're the mature believer Wednesday night crowd. All you watch at home, I know you don't either. But look what's in parentheses. Pleasure, power, possessions, people. Do we value things above God? Do we skip church because our best friend came to town? Do we like our stuff so much we're not giving to the work of the Lord. We can have a favorite sport that consumes our mind and our life and I only squeeze God in. I can only go to church when the fish aren't biting or when the dolphins aren't playing or whatever else. Okay, the Patriots aren't playing. Whoever your team is. Little g-gods in the modern world or anything... Notice it said people. We can't put our spouses, our kids, our family above big G God. Anything above God becomes a little G idol. So we have to really look. You know, I don't know what you value. You don't know what I value either, by the way. God does. We already had a main point that God knows our thoughts, good and bad. He also knows our idols, doesn't he? Don't put anything any person, any anything, even what on the surface looks like it's not sinful. For example, I, I said fishing a while ago. Fishing is not sinful, but it becomes sinful when I elevate above the Lord. It's consumed my life. I'm not worshiping a fish, bowing to a fish, but you value where your time and your heart is. If it consumes my thinking, I'm always thinking about the newest lure, 
how to tie a lure, buy favorite fishing spot. I need a new boat. I don't have time for church. I'll squeeze it in when the weather's bad, when the fish aren't biting. Even a, a safe, normal, what we would say on the surface, non-sinful activity can become a little G God if we're not careful. So I'll get off my little G soapbox for a second. We might come back to it. 31, verse 31, back to our text. Jacob is going to answer why he left. I was afraid. I was afraid because I thought you'd take your daughters away from me by force. Why would he think that? Don't forget, he's been with Laban a long time. He knows Laban like a book. He knows Laban likely would have done that except for God appearing to him in that dream. But he's going to answer his little God question. If you find anyone with me that has your little gods, that person shall not live. Little does he know his wife has them, but God's going to protect her. In the presence of our relatives, everybody watching, see for yourself. Search the camp. Search everything. Try to find them. Because Jacob believes, you know, he, he knows he didn't do it. So he imagines nobody else did either. But he's, once again, we already saw that's not correct. See for yourself whether any, there's anything of yours here with me. And if there is, take it. Now, Jacob did not know, it says in that last line, that Rachel had stolen these gods. He knows Laban like a book. He knows what Laban's capable of. He knows Laban would likely kill whoever has them. And, he's, and, and by their traditions, he would have been allowed to, by the way. It's kind of sad, though, if you think about it. He, he really seems to know Laban. He doesn't know his own wife. He doesn't know what Rachel did because he, he doesn't know his wife would do that. He's not probably very attentive to either wife. It doesn't look like. He doesn't know what she's capable of. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in a second, too. Let's read a few more verses. Verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, in the tent of the two female servants, but he found nothing. After he, come out of, after he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Still didn't find anything. And then it tells us in 34 why. Rachel's pretty smart. She learned from her dad, by the way. Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle, and she was sitting on them. But even that's not good enough. We'll see in a second where she adds to that. Laban searched through everything in the tent, found nothing. But here's our key. You know, God has a plan. He, is, he wants Jacob to go back to the promised land, so he's going to make that happen. He never told Rachel to do that. He's not going to condone her thievery. But he's also not going to let her theft and her deception wreck his plan. God's plan is to get them all back, and he's going to see it through, no matter what Rachel does on the way. Which is another great verse. This is a great verse for us to know out of Isaiah. God's plans. Everything. Don't miss that. Everything. I, that's God. Plan comes to pass. Isn't that a good promise? Everything. For I, God, do whatever I wish. You sinful little G people can't mess up my plan is what that really means to us. But it also ought to encourage us. God has a plan for your life. He has a plan for my life. He had a plan to save us. He accomplished that, I hope, for all of us tonight. If your salvation plan's not complete, God has a plan for that. Come see me at the end of tonight. We'll pray. We'll talk about it. We'll kind of clarify your salvation and pray about it together. 
But God's plans can't be stopped. Scriptures, I could have picked 100 verses that would have said that, but I kind of like that one out of Isaiah. So let's see what goes down next. Verse 35. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my Lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. She knows if he searches the saddle, she's busted. you got to think where she's coming up with this. Look what she says next. I'm having my period. Likely not. She's lying is is what I would almost guarantee you, but I can't prove that. Scripture doesn't say that, but look at her character here. He searched, but he could not find the household gods. Because you got to remember, you know, historically that would have been considered unclean. They wouldn't want to go near that. She knows the one card she can play, and she plays it. (laughs) This is why you can't search this. Okay, I'm not going over there. You know, (laughs) he loses interest real quick. But it's a great indicator, I believe, in two things. Rachel's character, Laban's character. And the reason would be, where'd she learn to behave like that? A lifetime of watching Laban. He role modeled, you know, theft, deception, lying, changing wages ten times. So it's not where did she learn it, it's more like who did she learn it from? Wicked Laban that Dave warned us about weeks and weeks ago. So now Jacob, the search is over, nothing's been found. Jacob's going to get a little angry now because he feels like vindicated. Verse 36, it says, Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. What is my crime? What he's really saying is, where's your evidence of all these false accusations? How have I wronged you that you hunt me down? Now that you've searched through all my goods, what have you found that belongs to your household? If you found it, he says in the next verse, put it here in front of your relatives and mine. Let them be the judge. Because in Jacob's mind, these are all false accusations. Now, we know because we have the scripture to back it up, a crime did happen. He doesn't believe it is. Because what he's really saying is no evidence, no crime. But is that always true? And I'll give you, it's a little outdated now, but you'll all know the one I'm talking about. As I was studying this, just it popped in my mind. I'm going to give you a name, and that's all I'll need to say. Casey Anthony. Casey Anthony. If you use Jacob's logic, no evidence, no crime. Was there a crime in that case? Absolutely. That poor little girl's dead. Somebody did it. Most of us think we know who did it, by the way. I'm not going to accuse her on camera, but we would all think the person got away with it. But let's tie this to our text. Go back to the one that says, don't take revenge. Revenge is mine. That person might think they got away with that. They'll be in for a rude awakening someday. It may not be in the timing we would wish because that poor little girl is no longer with us, the baby. But the perpetrator will be judged and judged severely, and it will never end. The only hope for that person would be to get saved. And I I pray they do, because if they don't get saved, there literally will be hell to pay for whoever did that. God is a righteous judge. He's fair. But it's hard to imagine, though, that whoever did that would also get the chance, like we did, to fix it with salvation. Because if you tie that to other verses, and I've taught them in here through Romans, Revelation, even in Genesis, when we're justified, there's a term, we've, we've learned it in here multiple nights, 
It's like our sin never happened. In God's eyes, it never existed. And as hard as it is for us to get our human mind around that, even the perpetrator of that horrible crime, if they get right with Jesus, in God's eyes, it never happened. But here's the other good news. I don't want to leave you on a downer note, by the way, with this, you know, refresh your memory of sad things. That poor little baby is in heaven. She had no knowledge of how to accept Jesus, how to know Jesus. And here at Calvary, we teach there's what we call an age of accountability. We don't know a number of that age, but all that really means is if you're too young to understand the gospel, you go to heaven. You get what I would call, in my, in my words, the free pass. So that baby is in the eternal glory with Jesus' arms. So the real tragedy was fixed, just not in the way we would hope it would be fixed. But that's our hope, that the baby's saved, the family's saved, that some good would come from that tragedy. But back to land this plane, no evidence does not, does not mean no crime. There was a crime. In this case, Laban just can't find the evidence of it. But, you know, maybe God's messing with Laban. He's hiding those gods on purpose. Like, those things are nothing. I'm going to hide them from you. I don't want you to have those stupid things. He's trying to give Laban a chance he had God appear to him in a dream. If you think about it, God is offering salvation to Laban. He's saying, I'm real. I'm the God. I'm talking to you. Those stupid little things your daughter stole are nothing. But he wants them back desperately. So we'll keep reading. Um, <clears throat> verse 38. I've been with you. Now this is Jacob talking to Laban again for 20 years. 20 long years, seven for each daughter, and then more years as he herded those flocks and got his kind of crop built up and all that. Your sheep and your goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore that loss myself. We don't get that little statement. I'm not going to spend much time, but the shepherd was allowed to bring a slain animal by, by like a wolf or a lion or something, and he wasn't responsible for that one's death. Laban would have probably required Jacob to replace even those. And Jacob is telling him, I even replaced it. You never knew it, but animals killed some of your animals, and I took care of it for you. Then in verse 39, he goes on to say, you demanded payment from me whether it was stolen day or night. In other words, even when it wasn't my fault, you made me pay. This was my situation. Now he's going to describe his, his life. The heat consumed me in the daytime like Florida in August, as we learned this weekend, and the cold at night. Sleep fled from my eyes. It was like that for 20 years I was in your household. He's kind of telling him, you made me like a servant, and I had a terrible hard life, and you made me pay for things I shouldn't have to. You treated me terribly. But apparently, in Scripture anyway, as far as we can tell, this is the first time Jacob has complained which is another great concept for us. We're getting a lot of concepts tonight, by the way. This is a verse out of Philippians that we should take to heart. Do everything, including mistreatment, that means everything, without complaining and arguing, so that no one, no unbeliever, can criticize you. Live a clean, innocent life as a child of God. Shine like a bright light in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Doesn't it describe our world outside those doors, kind of? A lot of it anyway, a crooked and perverse generation. 
What are we supposed to do? Live a shining example lifestyle that nobody can point fingers at without complaining about all the terrible things around us. Even when we're being mistreated like poor Jacob has been. That's a hard one, isn't it? We got to pray and ask the Holy Spirit for help on that one, I think. Then finally, he's going to tell him how bad he treated him over this 10-year thing. He's going to end up, verse 41, he says, I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters, seven for each one, and then six more years for your flocks, and you changed my wages 10 different times. So we really see Laban's character again, how he is. He's made threats, he has false gods, he's changed his wages, which brings up our third thing to write down if you're taking notes. You already know this, I hope anyway, but our world is not fair. Don't you know that already? I don't have to tell you that. You know it's not. But here's the key. The way we, me and you, all of you watching online, respond to that type of mistreatment speaks volumes about us. It's a great assessment tool is what that point says. And really it's a self-assessment. The way I respond can sometimes convict me later. Like, oh, I shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have done that. Don't you ever have those kind of thoughts? So we can assess ourselves by how we respond to mistreatment. But more importantly, I think the world is watching us Christ followers. They want to see how you behave when you're mistreated. Because the world knows what it does, they're going to get people back. That's, that's the practice. When we don't do that, it makes people think, wow, something about those people are different in a good way. If we respond like they do, why would they want to come to church with us? They can be like that at their house. But if we respond differently in a kinder, gentler, non-complaining way, it attracts people to want to know, how do I do that? How can I learn how to do that? How can I not react like that? The answer is Jesus. We know it, but we have to model it to others 24-7. And my first place to check is in that mirror. How am I, how's Dave doing on that? I'm a weak person like you are. We, we all fail. We just have to work on being better role models for the world around us. Amen? Amen. Verse 42, if the God of my father, still not Jacob's God, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, more on the fear of Isaac in a little bit, had not been with me, you would have surely sent me away empty-handed. In other words, you'd have taken all the stuff back, including the daughters, most likely, is what he's saying. But God has seen my hardship and the toll of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. So Jacob is getting it a little. He's standing up to Laban's false accusations as he sees them. He's bringing God in the picture, but he's still not saying, my God, it's the God of my father. It's the fear of Isaac. Let's see Laban's answer in 43. Laban answered Jacob, the women are my daughters. This is a great picture of his character too, by the way. Think about this as I read it. The children are my children. In other words, they're not yours. They're still mine is what he's really saying. And the flocks are my flocks, even though I've bargained with you and let you have them. All you see is mine. Everything. People, animals, possessions. Yet what can I do about it today that these daughters are mine or about the children they've born? 
Come now, let's make a covenant. Didn't he already do that a couple of chapters ago? He's made multiple agreements with Laban, and he keeps changing them ten times. So why would Jacob believe the eleventh one? I don't know. You and I, let, us serve as, let this covenant serve as a witness. But he's going back on every promise he's already made. He tells them, those daughters are mine, those grandchildren are mine, all those animals are mine. It's all mine. You just think it's yours. I just promised it to you. It's not really yours. I just promised it. What kind of character is that? A, a bad one. Which brings up our next kind of verse that's also a point in a way. A Matthew, a verse from Matthew. Pretty simple. Let your yes mean yes. Let your no mean no. We've heard that before, right? Easy to read, easy to quote, easy for me to read to you. Sometimes hard to do. And here's why. We may not be deceptive like Jacob and Laban are taking turns deceiving each other. But sometimes we feel like, I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Maybe they invite me somewhere. They invite you to dinner or go someplace. You pretty much know you're not going to do it. And what do you say? Oh, uh, let me pray about that. Or we'll see. Um, or I might go. That verse says, let your no be no. Because you're going to get their hopes up and they're going to be upset when you don't show up. They may not really like the no, but it's better than giving them false hope and you bailing out on them at the end. No be no, yes be yes, keep it short, keep it clear. Because I didn't even read the other half yet, but I'm going to. Look where the anything else comes from. Who, who comes from the rest of that statement if I sort of elaborate and add things and don't really mean it? Anything more than my no and my yes is comes from the evil one. It's the devil making me do it. But really it's not. I'm doing it. But it tells you where I'm getting it from. It's, it's not healthy. It's not godly. Yes, no, leave it at that. Back to our text, 45. Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar, not a pillow this time, a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. We got to make this thing taller. They took stones, piled them in a heap, and ate there by the heap. Laban called it Hagar Sahudutha, and Jacob called it Galid. In both those names, they're two different languages, but they both mean witness heap. Let this heap of rocks be a witness to our, our covenant, our bargain. I think Jacob has agreed to this little covenant, this little pile of rocks. He just wants to get away. He's like, you know what? I may never see this guy again. He's bad. He's bad news. Let me just get away. I'll agree whatever he wants to do. I've got to get out of here. Because he's, he's going to answer in verse 48. This heap is a witness between you and me today. That's why I called it Galid. It was also called Mizpah because he said, don't miss this verse, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we're away from each other. On the surface, that sounds pretty, pretty harmless, doesn't it? May the Lord keep watch between us when we're away from each other. Doesn't sound very threatening, but I'm about to tell you it is. Because what it really means, if you look at the translation, it means this heap of rock, this pillar, if you come back here and cross that line, I'm going to kill you. You cross over my side, you're dead. Doesn't sound so good anymore, does it? And by the way, this is a classic example of taking Scripture out of context. 
I hope nobody has one of these on tonight, but there's a thing out there called a Mizpah coin. You ever heard of one of those? It's kind of an older thing. Um, there's a picture of one. And what people would do with it, and still do, by the way, you can buy them on Amazon. After you hear this, I'm thinking you might not want to. The intent, what people think it means anyway, because they don't read the verse and take it in context, it's like this kind, we're going to be partying, maybe you're going to the military, your wife's staying home, you're going to boot camp or wherever, you're moving across the country. You keep this half, you wear it, I'm going to wear the other half, and then in, read the verse, may the Lord watch between me and thee, and while we're absent, and keep us, you know, kind of safe. The real meaning is, if you come back and cross the line, I'm going to kill you. So it's probably not a something you'd want to wear. It's totally out of context. It sounds good on the surface, and I'm sorry if anybody has one. Keep wearing it if you want. It doesn't mean anything's going to happen. But if you think about the true meaning in Scripture, because in Scripture there might be many applications, but there's one meaning. The one meaning is not good. It's going to be harmful, and we'll see that again in a second. It's a classic example, as I already said, of people taking Scripture out of context that looks good on the surface. You really dig into it, like on Wednesday night, you'll find out, uh-oh, that's not so good after all. So <clears throat> anyway, the good news is, if you don't own one, don't bother. See, I, sa I saved you some money. That's the good news. <laughs> Back to our text, verse 50. You're going to see what this Mizpah 10 is, I think, quick. If you mistreat my daughters, if you take any wives beside my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness, and I think he means his little G-gods, but he doesn't have our God between you and me. He's trying to bring his version of other gods in the picture. We'll keep reading. But Laban also said to Jacob, here's this heap, here's the pillar I've set up between you and me. This heap is a witness, this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side, look what it says next, to harm you. That's clearly the mitzpah coin. It, it's harm. Harm is the intent. If you cross the line, I'm going to harm you. And really it means I'm going to kill you. And then it says that you will not go past this heap on my side to harm me. It's a mutual agreement not to harm each other. It's not some huggy, kissy reunification like that coin makes it out to be. He is warning Jacob, if you come back here, I'm going to kill you. Don't come back. Treat my wives well. Your God is watching. But if you come back, it's not going to go well for you. And I think we saw his intent based on that dream God appeared to him. We're almost done. Verse 53. May the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. Once again, if you look at the surface reading of that, it sounds like all the same God. It's not. That's three, or at least two, separate gods. The God of Abraham is our God, the big G God. The other two, not so much. Nahor and Terah, Terah's not mentioned, but that's Nahor's dad. They also had little G gods. Where did Laban learn those things from? Nahor and Terah. I'll show it to you with a verse. So these idols... I think they all liked Hank Williams Jr., by the way. That's my bad song joke for tonight. Family tradition. Remember that song? These false idols are a family tradition. I'll show it to you with a verse. Here we go. This is over in Joshua. He says to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, our God, says. 
Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and so Terah and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River. What they worship? Little G gods. So when he invokes what we think on the surface is the God of Abraham, God of Nahor, God of their father, that's three different gods, or at least two, if Terah and Nahor had the same ones. Only Abraham's is the right one. Then look in 53. Look, what, is, what does Jacob do about this? Jacob took an oath. He's asking him, may the gods judge, is what Laban's saying. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. The fear of Isaac, it's the only time we see this in Scripture. That's really another name for God. And sometimes people see fear as a negative, but really it's a positive. We should all have a healthy fear of the Lord, which would be awe, reverence, respect, praise, worship. Let's look at a verse. Don't listen to me. Let's listen to Isaiah. How about that? Isaiah 8.13. Make the Lord, we sang this in a way tonight, the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. In other words, put him first. He is the one you should fear. God's word said we should fear him. Can't be any clearer than that. He is the one who should make you tremble. Other verses in the New Testament, I'm not going to read them, but I'll paraphrase them, say, don't be afraid of Satan. Don't be afraid of the devil. Be afraid of the one that controls the destiny of your soul, God. But it's not a trembling, scared, hiding fear like Adam and Eve in the garden. This is more a respect. It's a healthy fear of God, you were so good. You spoke creation into existence. You created me in my mother's womb. You had plans for my life before I was ever born. I can hardly understand some of that, but I'm so appreciative. I'm in awe of you. I just want to get on my face and worship you. I'm not worthy to be near you. That's the fear we should have. It's a healthy fear. It's a good thing. It's, just think of it more. Instead of fear, maybe in your mind just replace, when you see that word, if it seems to be a negative, replace it with awe, respect, those kind of words. That's, that's the, the idea there. And our final main point for taking notes, every now and then I, I did it tonight, I like a verse as a main point. This would be one of them. It's a good proverb for us. This might be a refrigerator verse for you if you don't have it yet. Proverbs 9, 10. Fear the Lord is foundation of wisdom. It's a good thing. There's two examples in Scripture. I could pull out a million more. Fear the Lord, respect of the Lord is a good thing, and we need it. We should respect the big G God that created everything with his voice because he can also take it back with his voice, too. And when his second coming happens, people will have a fear, but it won't be us. We're going to be on the winning team. It'll be those other people that have the bad fear. It'll be a righteous fear. It'll be a different fear. We have the good fear. They have the trembling, uh-oh, I'm going to die fear. We have the fear of, I'm so much in awe and I love you so much. I just want to worship you. Respectful fear. Last couple of verses and we're done and we'll pray. Verse 54, so what does Jacob do? 
He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country, that would be Gilead, by the way, invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren, his daughters, and blessed them. Then he left, and he started heading back home. So that's the end of our story tonight. God protected his chosen people, which would be Jacob and Rachel, even though Rachel's behaving badly. They're all behaving badly in some ways, including Jacob. But God's plan hadn't changed. The original covenant still needs to happen. It went through Abraham, Isaac, now Jacob. Go to the promised land. I'll give you a land, a people. I will bless your socks off, and all nations will be blessed through you because of Jesus. God's plan can't be thwarted. And so they can misbehave along the way. God probably never wanted that to happen, but he doesn't let that affect his plan, which ought to encourage us. When we misbehave, we've all done it, God still has a plan for your life. We just got to get back on the horse and do better. So let's just pray for that right now. Lord, tonight we love you. We've clearly seen how you love our characters and our story tonight, and you love us even more, Lord. And it says, Lord, that um, you love those who love your son, and that's why I say you love us more because we love Jesus in here. And Lord, um, we can never repay the debt you paid for us. You died for us. You loved us so much. You sent Jesus to pay for my and everybody's in this room's sin. But Lord, we do respect you. We're in awe of you. We have that healthy fear. Have us, help us, Lord, even respect and fear you more. Give us that healthy fear and awe of you because you love us so much. Lord, we praise you. We worship you. We thank you. And Lord, Just continue to work in our lives and make us each day more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. We all said, Amen. Amen. See you this weekend.